Hey there, and welcome to a new season of Scopophilia, the podcast. We are the millennial movie movement, and I, of course, am your host, Becky Teller. And wow, does it feel good to be back. <laughs> Let me tell you, I had a wonderful break, lovely holiday, a different holiday, of course, since we are still in the pandemic, but wow, has a lot happened since the last time we've really connected. What's going on with you? How are you doing? I know a lot has been happening uh, here in the U.S., so just don't forget to take a breath. Uh, I know I have to remind myself on the daily uh, just to breathe and <laughs> take a second and just relax and maybe disconnect from the news and things like that. Uh, but exciting things in the future. I think 2021 is going to be new and exciting, and we just we just never know what's around the corner, do we? And as for this show, I can tell you with great certainty that we are going to have a great year because we have an amazing lineup of guests for this season, and we're kicking it off strong with returning guest Stephen Toblowski. Now, of course, we all know Stephen Toblowski from his iconic role as Ned Ryerson in Groundhog's Day, which if you have not listened to that episode, take a second and listen to it. He came on as a guest and talked about his experience working on the film, which was spectacular. And so he was gracious enough to come back on the show and talk about his favorite film. But we've also seen him in several other amazing films, such as Memento, Mississippi Burning, and then, of course, more recently, he has been on One Day at a Time on Netflix, as well as The Goldbergs. And he is on the show today to talk about his favorite film, which is something that I actually hadn't seen before, uh, called The Best Years of Our Lives from 1946. It's an absolutely gorgeous film. And on top of it all, as somebody who's done multiple film classes, has a degree in film, it was one that wasn't brought up on the roster, which is shocking. Uh, so if you haven't seen the film, I suggest that you do uh, take a look at it before listening to the episode, because then you can really appreciate what we're talking about. Um, otherwise, you can just listen, uh, because Stephen Toblowski's voice is so incredibly soothing, and he's so passionate about this film that you just can't help but be hooked into whatever he's talking about. Uh, he was a wonderful presence on the show. So without further ado, here's my interview with Stephen Toblowski about his favorite film, The Best Years of Our Lives. Enjoy! Scopophilia is the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, Side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Hey there, Scopophiliacs, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia, the podcast. And we have a very special guest today. He's been on the show before. Please welcome the wonderful, the talented, Stephen Toblowski. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you all. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on what time zone you're in. 
Right. (laughs) Exactly. And how are you doing since we last spoke? It's been an interesting kind of journey. Since we last spoke, I think I've done three Goldbergs. Amazing. And we did them in a row. And the first one, I was thinking like, you know, in in Judaism, they have this little thing, if not now, when? Mm. You you know, now is not the right time, when? And And I thought, I'm so proud of myself that I'm taking the chance to go to Sony Studios and do the Goldbergs in the age of COVID. Second show we did right after that, I was like, you know, this is like two weeks now of prolonged risk and getting COVID tests every 48 hours and whispers that they're going to close all the studios down because there's been COVID outbreaks all over at the studios. The third show I did in a row I'm like, oh my God, am I the stupidest man on earth? <laughs> am I just on the front? And uh, Wendy, uh, who plays Mrs. Goldberg, Mindy mm-hmm. McClendon Covey, we were doing a scene and the ADs come running on the set. The set has to be evacuated. <gasps> Everyone has to leave the set. There's been a COVID break in this on stage. And so Wendy and I run outside uh, and we wait. And we wait, and then the AD says, go home. Everybody go home. We'll call you. Oh, and my I'm gosh. Like, oh, my gosh. This is like what a moron I am for working. <laughs> and I go home, and then I get a call from one of the assistant directors and saying that one of the stand-ins had tested positive for COVID. He was not on stage when Wendy and I were there, but he was on stage beforehand. Mm-hmm. And so they are... Uh, steam cleaning, whatever they do, the the entire stage. And then we're going to go back and finish the scene the next morning if we both test negative. That's the right word. Negative negative for COVID. So we had to take that Abbott 15-minute test. Mm. And, you know, you sit there and wait, and that's some of the longest 15 minutes of your life. Right. That or watching some of the Academy foreign films that I've seen this year. (laughs) There have been some long 15 minutes there. Uh, but it, it really made me think about the risks we, we take every day without thinking about it and going to work and, and just assuming everything's going to be all right. And now we live in a world where you cannot assume everything's going to be all right and you're going to have your loved ones the next day. And it puts unbelievable stress on the situation. So right now, as we speak, I am happy to announce I am unemployed. (laughs) I'm I'm sitting here doing one of my favorite things in the world, and that's talking to you and talking to you about movies. So so this is like this is like a vacation for me. Oh, well, that's so wonderful to hear. And I'm I mean, I'm so happy that you agreed to come back and you picked a lovely movie that I hadn't seen, um, which is the best years of our lives. And so let's kind of start with why this film? Of all the films I know that you had talked a little bit the last time we'd spoke about some of your favorites, you know, what was it about this film that you were like, this is the one that I need to come back with? I think I saw Best Years of Our Lives for the first time in a film class at SMU when I was a student. I'd never seen it when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And it was shocking. The film was shocking to me. Yeah. And uh, beautiful and terrifying, amazing. And then 
as you know, you get older and you see a lot of films, you realize, you know, that best years of our life thing, that thing I saw, there haven't been really any films that come really close to that movie in terms of doing what they're doing, in terms of what a movie is. And then I see over the years, people compiling lists of what they think some of the best movies ever made were. And the best years of our lives is often somewhere in the top 10. And as I reflect on it, you asked what is your favorite or best movie you've been in or any film. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, we've talked about Groundhog Day and other films, which I think would be my favorite film I've been in. And certainly it'll be a film that will endure time. I think it is made to endure the ages. It's a beautiful comedy and it's wonderful. There's so... On the, last, on the last episode, we were talking about the many, many ways a movie can go wrong. Yeah. Many, <laughs> many, many ways. Little ways, even down to credits at the end being stupid. Right. You, you know, well, let's, let's show outtakes of the actors forgetting their lines at the end of a good movie. <laughs> you know, there are millions of ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Best Years of Our Lives does everything, not only right better in some ways than it's ever been done before, and maybe that it's ever been done again. And and partly because I don't think they were aware of how great of a story they were telling and how well they were telling it. Maybe they were. Now, in my life, personally, I've spoken to Harold Russell, and I've spoken to Teresa Wright. Uh, I directed a, a local production here in Los Angeles of our town, Thornton Wilder's Our Town, famed for being in high school drama, yes. know, the <laughs> high school auditorium. But our production was particularly good. And sitting next to me was a woman who introduced herself to me as Teresa Wright. And Teresa Wright wanted to see Our Town because it was one of the first jobs she had as an actress was to be an understudy of the role of Emily in our town, in the first production of of the play. Oh, my gosh. And so I'm sitting next to Teresa, and we're talking our town, and then I have to jump. And I said, can we talk a little about best years of our lives? Can we talk about this? Because I do think it could be the greatest film ever made. When you put all of the elements together of great story, great acting, great directing, innovative, and I still think it's innovative today. When you watch the movie today, it is still shocking. Absolutely. Let me ask you, what, what were some of the things that shocked you? So as, I mean, so as somebody who's watched a lot of films from, you know, 1940, 1950, I mean, the first thing that shocked me was Harold Russell not having hands, having prosthetics. Bing. And then immediately, like, well, not immediately, but, you know, throughout the movie, you have um, Dana Andrews or Fred Derry taking out Teresa Wright for lunch. And I was like, Ooh, scandalous. He has a wife. He's taking out another woman for lunch. And then he kisses her. And I went, oh, scandal. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and and uh so the the first thing that completely is shocking for me in the film is Harold Russell. And and I don't know if we want to do spoilers because I think there are a lot of people in the younger generation that have not seen this film. 
Absolutely. And, well, so I am all for spoilers. Um, okay. If you didn't come prepared for class. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll put it this way. Mm-hmm. In, in When I began writing professionally and, and I had editors and people help me, they would always write something in the margin and circle a paragraph of mine with red ink and say, show, don't tell. Show, don't tell, all the time. Mm. And so I called up Ben, my editor, and I said, I, I kind of get what you mean, but what do you mean? I'm writing a book. You have to kind of tell. He says, you have to find a way to reveal information by showing it, not have someone explaining it. Yes. Uh, in, in this particular scene, Harold Russell is playing uh, a Navy, I, I guess a mechanic in the Navy. Uh, Everyone, all the servicemen have come home. The war is over, and they're trying to find ways to get home, and conventional aircraft will not take you home. All the flights are filled, and they're filled with rich folk going to play golf. And all the servicemen trying to get home have no way to get home except on these cargo planes that fly at 500 feet. And (laughs) uh, I had a friend of mine, Robert Brinkman, who could not, who was working with U2, the rock group. Oh. He was uh, photographing their Rattle and Hum uh, tour and that movie. And Robert, they had to travel on one of these old bombers that that travel at 500 feet. They're not compressed like a a jet plane is with the little, you know, like the, you're you're just, you can open the damn window, you you know, you could reach out and grab a pelican. You're flying so low. And, and so all these servicemen are crammed. They're hoping to get the first cargo plane kind of home. And you contrast the real airlines where Fred Derry, Dana Andrews, cannot get home and a rich man with golf clubs pushes his way in front and says, excuse me, you have my ticket there? Oh, yes, sir, we do. Oh, you have extra luggage? Oh, here, just let me pay you. Mm-hmm. And, and the woman says, well, to, to Dana Andrews, you can go across. You know, there's aircraft that'll take you home. So it goes there. It's filled. It's filled. It's filled with servicemen going home. Mm-hmm. People smoking cigarettes back in the age when, you know, that's the only enjoyment they had. Some yeah. sleeping on the floor. Some, I mean, just like the Milan airport was when my wife and I were trying to get to Paris and our plane stopped in Milan for 12 <laughs> hours. And we were like sitting on the floor with 600 of our favorite friends. Right. And, and, so Harold Russell is the only Navy guy sitting there by the door, and they need some help. Somebody comes into where all the servicemen, hey, you know, we have to move some stuff off of the runway to get this plane ready. Can, you know, can we get a hand? Yeah. Can we get a hand? And so oh. several of the servicemen around Harold Russell jump up and run out the door and Harold Russell is still just sitting there with his hands in his coat pockets. And one of the other uh, army, someone from the army says, what's the matter, Navy? You know, can't get up to help? Something like yeah. that. Harold Russell doesn't answer anything. All we know is this guy, this one Navy guy there has just been dissed. So we think Navy is lazy. Right. 
Then they get the call for Boone City, wherever the hell that is. And Dana Andrews and Harold Russell and one other fellow are going to go to Boone City. And they come up and Harold Russell's first in line. He pulls his hand out of his pocket and he has no hands. He has no hands. Show, don't tell. Yeah. You have no exposition. All you know is this guy didn't come and lend a hand to help clear the runway. Show, don't tell. And now Dana Andrews, who's our leading character right now, we're seeing Mm -hmm. this scene through his eyes. He's standing next to Harold Russell, looking at this guy with hooks. And it's for real. It's not like CGI. It's nothing. Harold Russell is an actor who lost his hands. And he has hooks because that's what they fit you with back then. Mm-hmm. And with his hooks, he signs his name on the ticket to send him to Boone City. Then <laughs> you, this is in the first, what, two minutes of the movie? It, literally, yeah. <laughs> and, and you are, oh, so now we as an audience are in the position of Dana Andrews because of the brilliant exposition of the film. Now, modern films, they do something stupid like uh, you'd be in a hospital and the head doctor would be talking with Dana. Well, let me let me walk you down here. Now, right down here, there is a serviceman who's lost his hands in battle, yeah. in, in a fire. Uh, you, know, we're, you know, we're doing the best. And they would have exposition mm-hmm. of somebody uh, talking about But no, we as the audience are the first people to see that he has no hands, along with Dane Andrews and the man who's giving them a ticket. Yeah. Uh, That is the first shock to me. Absolutely. Well, and one of the things that I experienced while I was watching the film was, I mean, people with disabilities, you just don't see it in like classic Hollywood films. No. And so I kept kind of thinking in my mind, like, well, there's no way that that can be real. I'm like, maybe it's faked <laughs> somehow or something. And then towards the end of the movie, he takes off the prosthetics and I went, oh my gosh, he actually does not have hands. That's amazing. Because he's doing all these, like he's lighting cigarettes, he's writing his name, he's drinking beers like out of glasses. And you're like, is this faked or is this, does he and actually They, te- they tease it. it. You know, they tease it a little bit in that, uh, he Harold Russell is living with his mother, his father, mm-hmm. and his little baby sister, who has the other kids make fun of him because yeah. he has no hands. <sighs> In another shocking scene, yeah. uh, as he puts his hands through a window oh, and know. says, "Here, take a good look at them." Yeah, and then he says, "I shouldn't have done that. That was mean." Right, uh, <laughs> but you know. He, he goes to put the blanket up on his little sister. And I'm going to talk about something else about the way the film is shot in a second. Mm-hmm. That's mind-blowing. But he puts the blanket up over his little sister, then goes and raps on the door with his hook. Ready, Pop. And it's the routine. The yeah. father comes. And in one of the – there are not that many close-ups of the film. This is what I call a loose close-up, probably – shoulder height uh, Mm -hmm. on Harold Russell as his father is moving around him 
and we see their straps on Harold Russell's shoulders. We don't really see much of anything. The father puts a lit cigarette in his son's mouth so he could have one last puff of smoke before before nightfall, mm-hmm. before he goes to bed. And then we see the straps being moved from his shoulders. We don't really know what they are. Then the father puts something back on the chair. Mm-hmm. And then we see kind of in the distance, and that's one thing this movie does is it uses distance sim- cinematography in its cinematography that's mind-blowing. Uh, they use depth, not with any kind of fancy lenses, but you have scenes that happen somewhat out of focus in the distance, mm-hmm. scenes that happen in mirrors, scenes that happen through windows. So we, the audience, always feel that we're looking in on something that maybe we shouldn't see all. So the father does something to the son, puts a pajama shirt on it, on him, buttons the pajama shirt, takes the cigarette out of his mouth, and the son sits there on the bed. The father leaves. You hear the door close. And in the background, you see this thing, which are his arms mm-hmm. hung on the chair, the phony arms, mm-hmm. which is just the setup for his girlfriend, his fiance, yes. who he cannot talk to since he came back because he knows, oh, they all hear what injury is like. But once they see it, it's a whole different story. Yeah. And uh, this is Kathy O'Donnell who plays Wilma, the next door neighbor. So this was some romance that, that you know, <laughs> Harold Russell, who's Homer Parrish, he was, he was probably a football player. There are pictures of him playing high school football on the mm-hmm. wall in the background. So he was a football player. That's probably how Wilma fell in love with him. But now he's home for more. No arms, no hands. Mm-hmm. And she says, I loved you before you left for war. I love you now. I know. And 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 he says, you don't know. You don't know what it is. Yeah. And the scene with the father is just a setup for another mofo, absolutely <laughs> mind-blowing scene near the end of the movie where he trusts her, says, yeah. this is what our life will be like. Yeah. And she lovingly takes off his arms. And then we, the audience, see the whole damn thing. Mm-hmm. Show, don't tell. And then we are shocked. Yeah. Stunning. And it's just so beautiful. And that whole, that like, I, I won't say monologue because it's a little shorter than a monologue, but that whole thing that he does where he says, you know, I'm as vulnerable as a baby. And like those lines that he has and like the emotion that Harold Russell shows through this whole movie is also kind of shocking because it's a man crying and showing emotion and showing fear about his situation. It's just, oh, it's just gorgeous. Just absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> this is when I know I'm helpless. My hands are down there on the bed. I can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. I can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. Who's dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. 
Well, now you know, Wilma. Now you have an idea of what it is. I guess you don't know what to say. It's all right. Go on home. Go away like your family said. I know what to say, Homer. I love you. And I'm never going to leave you. Never. Now, of course, the focus on Harold Russell is mm-hmm. fair. He did win a Special Academy Award for this portrayal. It is phenomenal. But <laughs> the thing that kills me so much about this script that's so amazing, you know, this movie is two hours, what is it, 30 minutes long? Two hours, yeah. 40 minutes? It's a long movie. Yeah. But it flies. It flies by. And one reason it flies by is it uses something that I don't think has been used successfully, and maybe you could correct me. I can't. I've been going through my brain of movies. Lots of movies have the A story and the B story, Mm -hmm. you know, led by a particular character. And those stories intersect or don't intersect as the plot develops through a movie. This movie has a full-fledged A story, B story, and C story. Sometimes. These stories meet. Sometimes it's just two of the three, mm-hmm. but you have the Frederick March story, who plays Al Stevenson, who yep. was a dog soldier. He was <laughs> he was a sergeant in the army, as low as he get. Then you got Dana Andrews, who was our hero at the very beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, we're drawn to the fly boy. He was a captain, a, a bombardier. Butte looks so handsome in his uniform. Uh, Dana Andrews is clearly a B story. And Harold Russell is clearly our C story, who was a mechanic in the Navy, got caught in a fire, lost his hands, lost his arms. Uh, Now, the only movie that came to my mind that tries to evolve the same plot device of an A story, B story, C story is Deer Hunter is the one that came to my mind. Now here, Deer Hunter certainly focuses more on the horrors of war and Mm -hmm. then it comes to the rehabilitation afterwards or the lack of rehabilitation of the soldiers afterwards. Best Years of Our Lives really is about, except in a nightmare sequence that Dana Andrews has, This movie is not about war, but is about the men and women (laughs) dealing with picking up the pieces after World War II, after Mm -hmm. the war together, trying to put the pieces together. Now, you have the Robert De Niro story in The Deer Hunter. Mm -hmm. You have uh, Chris Walken, really, as the B story, I guess you would say, Mm -hmm. and John Savage. Maybe as the C story, it doesn't quite work as the C story. Uh, it's not as fully developed as the others. Right. And you have Meryl Streep, who, who really you could say maybe she is the C story rather than John Savage. I'm just trying to think of comparable stories of three soldiers and three events. And you have John Savage, who's terribly injured just like Harold Russell is. You have Christopher Walken, who's the fly boy with the mental problems, very much like Dane Andrews. And you have Robert De Niro, who is really the realist. Mm -hmm. 
this, the scene with Robert De Niro sitting on the car, holding the bullet and saying, this is this. Mm-hmm. This is nothing other than this. And I remember seeing the deer hunter and being shocked at that little speech. And it changed my life saying, this is, oh, I get it. And Meryl Streep, of course, falling in love with Robert De Niro, falling in love with Christopher Walken, going mm-hmm. back and forth. And you have Teresa Wright's story comparable that she is, uh, Dana Andrews is married, you know, uh, oh. he's fully married to Virginia Mayo. <laughs> Mendel. Oh, Mendel. the scandal of it all. <laughs> and, and then he falls in love with, you know, Frederick March's daughter, Teresa Wright. So there mm-hmm. you have the A story and the B story mingling brought together by this daughter uh, that you have a, a a love triangle. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a question about this. Okay, movie. sure. What is your opinion mm-hmm. of the role of the women in best years of our lives? Because I have had an evolving idea about this over my life. How did you feel about the women in the best years of our lives? So I would say the women in this film are just as strong, if not stronger than the men in this movie, because they didn't see war, but they had to adjust to a society where the men in their lives who were supposed to, you know, quote unquote, support them, protect them, things like that, weren't in the home. And now they have to readjust to these kind of broken men who don't know how to come back from that. Uh, from what they saw in World War II, whatever that might be. And so I I think it's really interesting how strong they are because I think in other 1940s movies, it would have been really easy for some of these women to just kind of fall to pieces. And none of these women do, which I think is amazing. (laughs) I completely agree with you 100%. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) And it was... It was an evolution for me because when I first saw the film, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I was a college student and I just thought Myrna Loy, who plays Frederick March's wife, was stunning. Oh, and, absolutely. And I just go, as a kid, I was going, what a great performance. And, you know, the Teresa Wright performance and the Virginia Mayo performance and Kathy O'Donnell, they were like performances I was used to seeing in 40s films, sort of kind of maybe, but as I grew older and watched this movie, I saw, no, no, no. These women are just as heroic as the men, except they haven't been given the training or the tools to put the world back together again. But damn it, they do it. The women are charged with repairing the world. And they do it. It is, it is as heroic. I, I, you know, there is such a pension that women feel like, well, we have to have a Wonder Woman movie and we have to have mm-hmm. some sort of Marvel characters that are like women, you know, just to be equal with men. No, 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 no. In no way are the women equal to the men in this movie. I would say in a way, <laughs> they're superior right. with, without the uniforms because Absolutely. they have to put the pieces together of a broken world. It's on them. You have Frederick March who returns home and it's clear 
he's an alcoholic. 100%. 100%. You have Dana Andrews, who whose mind may never be right. And you have his wife, Virginia Mayo, class A bitch performance <laughs> of the year. Yes. Give me a break. Man, <laughs> is she fantastic. Not only is she beautiful, she is relentless. I had an acting teacher, Maria Gobetti. And she said, Stephen, you know, the problem with you is you have to learn how to play parts that are unpleasant Mm because you really always want to be likable in whatever you do. You, You have to be absolutely unafraid to be monstrous and unlikable. And I gotta say, Virginia Mayo, she is one of the most unlikable people yes. uh, in, in, in a movie, and yet she is magnificent. She is what she is, unapologetic to the end. Absolutely. Well, and she's justified in her mind, which I think makes the character that much stronger. Yes. She, she, it's really simple, sweetie. Uh, I, the scene in the, in the ladies' room. Yeah. Where, where <laughs> Teresa Wright goes on a date with someone other than Dana Andrews. She sets up the date to prove to herself that her love for him is wrong because if he sees if she sees him with his wife and they're double dating, and she says, as soon as I get to know his wife and get to be friends with her and see how they are together, I think it'll be a real dose of reality. Mm-hmm. And Frederick March hears her say this and says to his wife, Myrna Loy, we don't have to worry about that girl. <laughs> and Myrna Loy says, that's what I used to think. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so even, <laughs> you know, as an audience, we're, we're with Frederick March thinking like, what a bold, brave girl. Here she's been thrown into the beginning of a possible threesome, uh, you know, like a triangle, <laughs> yeah. love triangle. Uh-huh. And her first response is to be honest. I am going on a date with this guy and his wife with some kind of slug that has always had a crush. I felt so sorry for that guy, man. He's, and Teresa Wright is such a bitch to him. I know. Oh, stop being so silly. Oh, stop it. Stop. Yeah. It. Lay off, you know, cut it out. You know, she's being such an old bitch to him. Uh, not even close to Virginia Mayo. But, well, but, no. <laughs> But they go on the date, and in a way, the date cements the relationship between the two of them. But I think of, you know, finishing the last point, Kathy O'Donnell, we talked about her and Harold Russell healing the world. Mm-hmm. We have Teresa Wright saying to her parents, saying to Virginia Mayo in the scene in the bathroom, oh, Fred isn't going to be happy with the job at the drugstore. He's going to be something. She sees the dreams in in uh, Dana Andrews' character, and she's going to help make those true. Whereas his wife, Virginia Mayo, just is looking at the checkbook. And yeah. so it's like, hey, he's nothing. He's, he's nothing to me. So uh, if, if I could talk a little more about the A story, B story, and C story. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, <laughs> One thing this movie does that makes the pace fly, uh, you don't feel like you're sitting there for a long time at all, is that they have scenes. You you begin with these three men on the flight home to Boone City. 
and you watch over their shoulders through the bomb bay of of this bombardier flying at 500 feet, and Mm -hmm. you just see the back of their heads, and you hear the conversation, so you're one of these people. And what the the screenwriter, (coughs) Robert, God, Robert Sherwood, God, what (laughs) a screenplay. Uh, And it's from a novel. But but from his point of view, you got three forces working, and he's able to shuffle between all three are in play, two are in play, you know, one and two are in play, one and three are in play, two are in th- two and three are in play, and each one launches its own subplot. So you always feel like you are playing catch up with the story as you follow these three men through the through the script each each one has their own hurdles to to, to climb you, to jump jump is what you do with a hurdle and <laughs> and and that is something that i haven't seen much of in a movie to be able to spin three out of three characters you they spin like nine different stories with different combinations some with all three together, some two here, two there. And it's amazing how they make the film fly with that because you're always one step behind. You're, you're always playing catch up. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's so rare that you find a film that has three storylines going on simultaneously. I feel like a lot of films that try to accomplish that lose one of those storylines or or like you said some of them become a little less developed as they go on and this just is strong from start to finish because you get to see every single guy come home and what their situation is and how that is going to be and you follow these characters so closely on top of that and understand the social complexity so you have a film like deer hunter right Mm -hmm. And you're basically talking about this little town. Were they in Pennsylvania? Little town in Pennsylvania. Everybody works in the steel mill. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're all lower class people. They're all Catholic. You have a big, amazing scene in Act One with uh, John Savage's wedding uh, to the girl he knocked up accidentally. (laughs) And so you have this enormous, amazing crowd scene with this wedding. In best years of our lives, check out. The social, the social commentary they're able to lay out. You have Frederick March, you have uh, Dana Andrews, and you have Harold Russell. Okay, first let's take the society of the army. In the army, Frederick March was in the army as a sergeant. So mm-hmm. he was a dog soldier. So he dug a lot of trenches. He saw a lot of combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dana Andrews was a captain. He was a bombardier. He has a beautiful uniform with lots of ribbons, and, and everybody talks about what he was a captain. But in Boone City, he was a soda jerk. Right. Frederick March was vice president of the bank. So you have the sergeant who was kind of, you know, where they are in the military, kind of low, kind of low, I guess, yeah. echelon kind of officer but he's vice president of the bank in Boone City. You have mm-hmm. Dana Andrews, who's a captain, but in Boone City, he works behind the dairy farm. And then you have Harold Russell, who I guess was a mechanic 
in the Navy, and he really doesn't ever go back to any kind of a job. He is handicapped from that point on. He is on welfare. As he says, he makes 200 leaves of cabbage every month from Uncle Sam because he lost his hands. Mm -hmm. So he's on welfare. So you have the hierarchy, like in Shakespeare, plays like King Lear in Hamlet, you always have the hierarchy of man, the, the from Lord to worker to mm-hmm. to peasant to joker, all these hierarchies, uh, the, the levels of humanity displayed. Here you have a dual dual kind of spence. You ha- you have the middle class guy in the army. The sergeant in the army is the vice president of the bank. You have the soda jerk as the captain in the Air Force. And you have Harold Russell as a lowly mechanic. And now he's he's pretty much, you know, uh, um, on the state, you know, yeah. being paid by the state for the rest of his life. So you have all of this conflicting when you come into town, all the conflicts of all that happening, which, which I think is such a complex story to tell if my, I guess my summation in in terms of thinking about the storytelling mm-hmm. of of this movie is this is a huge story simply told. What you have in Star Wars is a simple story, elaborately told. Ooh. You know, Star Wars, you just have, Luke, you are my father, you know, I am your father, and whether they're going to blow up the Death Star or not. Yeah. You, you know, whether the resistance is going to be wiped out or they're going to blow up the Death Star. That, yeah. That's basically all you have, and you have a lot of fall to all along the way. The yeah. scene at the bar in Star Wars has no impact on the story <laughs> at all. It's just like, looking everybody at the bar and the long scene of the robots in the desert. Okay, 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 just kill me now. So, (laughs) you know, you have all these things to look at, but none of it really adds to the story. Right. In in the best years of our lives, we're in a small town America. We have a neighborhood. We have a local bar. Uh, we have uh, Dana Andrews, when he goes home, he goes home to a hovel. Uh, his dad lives under a bridge uh, yeah. in Boone City. They live like in a shack under the bridge. You, every, every scene adds to either the s- social construct of the film or what these men left from the military, that suddenly that rug is pulled out from the war is over, thank God. Mm-hmm. But now they have to start their lives over again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and let me ask you as well, because, I mean, you're so right. It's a huge story to tell in very simple but really elegant ways. And so I know that you had mentioned that you were interested in, like, the cinematography <sighs> of it. And let me ask you, because this was a thought I had watching it last night. Do you get kind of like an Orson Wellesy Citizen Kane vibe? from some of these shots? Because I was kind of getting, there was some like shots where you see the ceiling of places. And I was like, that's kind of, it's kind of Orson Wellesy of them to go for. You know, I didn't think of that, but I think, yeah, you could say some of this is Orson Wellesy, uh, very much Orson Welles 
very much wanted to see ceilings. Yeah. Because there weren't ceilings in movies then. Mm-hmm. Now, William Wyler, now I heard this, I don't know if it's true, but I heard one of the first discussions he had about filming is that he wanted mirrors. He wanted Ooh. mirrors everywhere. And if you think about the scene with uh, Teresa Wright and Virginia Mayo in the women's room, when they're on the date and they're discussing Fred and Mm -hmm. Virginia Mayo is like really (laughs) raking Dane Andrews. I was always just such a sourpuss, you know, he he used to be fun, but all the life got knocked out of him in world war two, you know, (laughs) right. You know, he's, you know, you're just, you're lucky. Go after this rich boy, trap him, get him married. You know, you'll be happy. That whole scene is told over their shoulders looking into the mirror of the bathroom. So you see the close-ups of the women through the mirror, but you're looking at the back of their heads pretty much. And then he also does side shots. Mm -hmm. And when you have Teresa Wright talking about he's not going to end up that way, you have two mirrors, side mirrors, that the women used to do her hair women to do their hair. So you have two profiles of her talking to Virginia Mayo. You have all of these mirrors in uh, Frederick March's bedroom. You have two mirrors as well. You have the large mirror that he looks at himself in, and you have the small mirror beneath that mirror that Myrna Loy uh, does her makeup in. So in the scene where Teresa Wright comes back after the double date Mm-hmm. and sits on the bed and says to her mother and father, you know, it was an unpleasant experience, but I'm glad I, I did it. And mm-hmm. Frederick March says, you're a brave girl for doing that. You know, that bravo to you. And she says, well, I'm going to have to be brave because I'm going to break that marriage up. <laughs> oh, shocking. Myrna Lloyd, you're good to what? And now you're seeing all that in the mirror. Mm-hmm. You're seeing all of them in the mirror looking at her. And then you have the typical, the typical amazing scene, which is uh, Teresa Wright lying on the bed in tears saying it was all so easy for you two. You oh. two fell in love. You, you got married. You went on a honeymoon. It's all been perfect for you. And then you have the shot of their backs. Mm-hmm. And then looking at her, and you see the two of them looking at her and them in the mirror saying, the number of times, Myrna Lois says, the number of times I told you I hated you and believed it in my heart. Mm-hmm. And the number of times you said, we're all washed up and we had to fall in love all over again. Yeah. I don't know what I do mean. It's just that... Everything has always been so perfect for you. You loved each other and you got married in a big church and you had a honeymoon in the south of France and you never had any trouble of any kind. So how can you possibly understand how it is with Fred and me? We never had any trouble. How many times have I told you I hated you and believed it in my heart? How many times have you said you were sick and tired of me, that we were all washed up? How many times have we had to fall in love all over again? 
Oh, God. Now, this uh, brings up something, another reason why this is my greatest film of all time, and probably one of the most important reasons. This film, the characters don't lie. Now, we may be real used to that from watching yeah. modern films where everybody lies to everybody else and the director and the writers think it's a plot point when the person who's been lying has been uncovered in their lie and now we find out the truth. Yeah. What happens in best years of our lives, the characters tell the truth to one another. Teresa Wright comes home immediately and says, I'm going to break that marriage up. And that becomes the new story. Like, what is she going to do? Right. She doesn't lie. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, Frederick March says, are you in love with my daughter to Dana Andrews? And, you, you know, yes. you know, he goes, yeah, Fred, so you, you know, you, you, you're married. You better stay away from her. Or I may get angry and break your neck, which, <laughs> which. I wouldn't want to do because I kind of like you as a person. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm going like, whoa! These characters don't lie. They don't. Uh, they don't hyperinflate the situations they're in, and so so much of the script is about them working out real situations. And who says the title of the film? Do you remember who says the title of the film? The best years of our lives? I actually don't. I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> of all things, this I think is so balls to the wall. Can I say that? In Absolutely. terms of writing, in terms of writing, Virginia Mayo says it when she's <laughs> bright, when she's bitching out Dana Andrews again uh, and ready to leave him for another guy. Right. Uh, you know, and just saying, I've spent the best years of our lives. <laughs> Best years of my life, <laughs> you know, and I'm not waiting around anymore. Oh and, my gosh. <laughs> and, you know, super, you know, so you're waiting for what is this? We think the best years of our lives is what we've lost in the war, or mm -hmm. is the best years of our lives what comes ahead? And the film ends with all of these stories coming together. And mm -hmm. as an audience, we have been inundated with the truth. These characters are speaking the truth. And, a, and across the room, as Homer is, is <laughs> marrying Kathy O'Donnell and mm -hmm. Hoagie Carmichael is playing the piano, Dana Andrews looks across the crowd at Teresa Wright. And over the crowd... The whole wedding is happening, and it's just on their two eyes meeting. Yeah. And the whole wedding party leaves, and they come up, and the end of the movie is an incomplete sentence. The, the, the movie is Dana Andrews' statement of purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, it may be hard. We may be, you know. Yeah. We, we won't have know, any money. We and... won't have any money. And she just kisses him. Ugh. And again, it goes back to what you talk about which I just came to at this advanced age, is that <laughs> in this women, in this movie, the women are the healers of the world. And Absolutely. we end this movie with a kick-ass ending where we see the world healed 
twice. In the one scene where Harold Russell gets married and Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright are going to get married and Myrna Loy and Frederick March are there to witness it. Mm -hmm. It's stunning. The The writing is stunning in, you know, in terms of show, don't tell. In, in almost every instance, oh, my favorite show, don't tell scene. We haven't touched on it. Hoagie Carmichael playing up a lazy river and, and uh, giving uh, Harold Russell advice. Hoagie mm-hmm. Carmichael plays Harold Russell's uncle. He runs the bar. He plays the piano. And Hoagie Carmichael, of course, plays the piano. He wrote Stardust. You know, he's a great composer. And so Hoagie Carmichael is instructing Harold Russell why he has to go home and why uh, he he has to be there for the father. The people are going to worry about him. And he does it while playing the piano. Yeah. And a la John Travolta complaining to John Badham when they were shooting Saturday Night Fever saying, if I'm doing this dance, you have to shoot it from floor to floor to ceiling. It has to be like Fred Astaire. It yeah. can't be done in cuts. I've worked on this dance for six months. You have to shoot it. You have to shoot the whole me doing the dance because it's real. Mm-hmm. So in this scene, Hoagie Carmichael, and let me tell you, as somebody who has had to play the piano and talk at the same time in a movie, it is not easy to do. I do that in Where the Day Takes You. And, right. and you know, the, the director just sprung up. Stephen, you play the piano. Why, you know, why don't you play a little something? And so I'm, 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 I'm sitting at the piano, and uh, I'm a pedophile again. I'm a pedophile <laughs> in that movie. And so, you, you know, I'm there talking uh-huh. – you know, and I'm playing this classical piece, like, oh, don't do that. Oh, God. You, you have to know exactly what you're doing because right. it has to edit unless you do what you do in this film. And that is they show Hoagie Carmichael hands, no edit, and he does the whole damn speech without a single cut. Yeah. Playing the piano and telling Harold Russell and finishing his speech on the last note of the song. Bing. Ugh. That is so amazing and so difficult to do. Amazing. Just amazing. Well, and it's so, and I say this all the time, I feel like in more modern films, like I think especially like from maybe the 2000s onward, there was this kind of wave of like, oh, we don't need to do long shots. We'll just cut, 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 cut. And like, that'll be the story. And so even like going back to these 40s, 50s films, there's a lot of long shots and a lot of emphasis on what is going on in the scene, whether it's people in the background or or the sets or, you know, something about the costume. And that is very present in this movie of it's not giving us everything on a silver platter. It's making us think it's making us be an active viewer to like the most minimum extent while also keeping us engaged and thinking the entire time, which is just, ah, it's just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and it brings life in. Uh, because they use such long shots, and, and there are an, an enormous number of, uh, hey, one of the most famous long shots in this movie 
is when Frederick March <laughs> comes home from yeah. war. <laughs> he knocks on the door. His son answers the door and he puts his hand over the son's yeah. mouth. <laughs> like, quiet. Don't tell anyone I'm home. Yeah. And he comes in with his suitcase and Myrna Loy is washing dishes in the kitchen. And she calls out, you know, who was it? Who was at the door? And she stops mid-sentence, and she knows, and she drops the dishes. The shot goes into the hallway behind Frederick March and the son, and Myrna Loy steps into the long shot. Yeah. So she is, you, you just the long shot of yeah. her full body, the back of Frederick March. And she's what? How far away would you say? 20, 25 feet away? Maybe, if that. You know, it's, it's, and then he runs to meet her, but the camera doesn't move. Yeah. So the embrace they have is at a distance. Yeah. It's like we're watching it with their children. Yes. Oh, oh my God. It, it's, oh. it's just, it wouldn't be done today. Today, no. they would cut to the close-up of, of all the kissing, and there's plenty of close-ups of kissing, but not then. And it's. Yeah startling the the use of when they use, for example, when they use the close-up on Harold Russell, when his father's taking off his arms, they use the close-up to hide what's happening, not to expose what's happening. They use (laughs) the medium shot a lot and the longer shots to reveal entire scenes, to reveal all the action. And so people have to be involved with life. Myrna Loy has to be cooking. They have to be making breakfast, have to be making coffee. They have mm-hmm. to be doing all of this stuff that actors hate doing in movies because you have to all do it all over again. And uh, they save, boy, I'm trying to think. For example, the one close-up they have of Harold Russell, the one mm-hmm. close-up is <laughs> after uh, his arms are put on by oh, Will. Yes. Uh-huh. She puts the arms on. She kisses him, lays him in bed, turns off the light. Mm-hmm. And it's just a close-up of him crying in bed. Yeah, just so sweet. It's and just... So... <sighs> exactly. Just, ugh. And, it, and again, it's that that thought of like, all of these men are military men. And so I think there's this kind of thought, especially with more modern movies. And of course it happens in real life, but there's this thought of like, they have to be men, they have to be manly at all times. And that whole scene is just Homer finally kind of realizing like, I can be strong, but I can also ask for help from this woman I love. Oh, I just got chills thinking about it. No, it's great. But here, here is kind of a reframing of, of what I was talking about, Star Wars being like yeah. a small story told on a big canvas. This is like an enormous story told very simply. But what happens when everybody tells the truth and you have this entire family of man with the hierarchy in society being in direct conflict with the hierarchy in the military is that when the various storylines come together, you are 
overwhelmed by irony. Mm. As an audience, you feel the chaos of society because of the ironic contradictions of the captain of the Air Force now is forced to make banana splits behind the counter. You're you're hit with the irony of the the fall from grace. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't have that in Star Wars. In Star Wars, you know, Darth Vader is Darth Vader. You know, that's all he is. You know, he is no more. They are both the hero's journey. Star Wars is the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, Best Years of Our Lives is the hero's and heroine's journey. Mm -hmm. they, They do tell the same story that way, but there is so much more richness in this script. There are very few movies I could think of that really examine society and the pit pitfalls and the dangers and, and the unfairness of society like the best years of our lives. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it, it paints such a, I, I would assume that it paints such a true version of what it was like because World War II ended in 1945, I think. And then this movie came out a year later. So it, it feels very much like it was a response to men coming home and what that picture looked like in America. But it's just so rich and it's so layered and and very progressive for oh, 1946. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, it is both. In the age of the pandemic, yeah. like just to talk about something that's very current, mm-hmm. which I felt this movie speaks to the pandemic directly. You have all these soldiers coming home from World War II, and none of them had anything. There were no jobs available. There were no, all the apartments say no vacancy. Yeah. There are no jobs available. Everybody is fighting for everything they can. It's these these people are are so there's they're trapped and they need mm-hmm. to find ways to be able to move ahead. Here in the pandemic, in current times, uh, we have the pandemic, and SAG has said to continue your health insurance, you you have to have amassed a certain amount of money of new jobs. And for me, they said between last March and this February. Oh, wow. And I was, and we wrote to SAG and said, it's impossible because there are no new jobs because no one's working. It's not fair. Right. And that's the same thing in the best years of our lives. These soldiers come home. They have no work history. They have no collateral. They, they have nothing that mm-hmm. in the old world, you'd be able to say, well, we're going to give this guy a loan. We're going to give this guy a break. We're going to give this guy a job. They've got nothing to go on. Right. And, and so you have to reimagine the world just like we're having to do now. I mean, in showbiz, we're having to reimagine how we're going to continue. Right. Well, and from what I'm hearing, it's, it's both a transition into how, how, how do we figure out how to make this safe for everybody while still producing content, which 
I think people are just so hungry for content who aren't in the business because they're they're at home and they just want some kind of escape. And so there's this kind of dichotomy of like, we have to stop, we have to make sure everybody's safe, and we need to keep going and make sure that people still have something to like look forward to. And so it's it's a very interesting time in history right now. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah, it it is uh just like World War II stopped the world for several years and it would never be the same again. This pandemic has stopped the world now for a full year. Yeah. Pretty much a full year. What is this? This is January. So this okay. Okay, a year ago, a year ago at this time, give or take a day, (laughs) I was working on one day at a time, and I got a message to go to Chicago that I was going to do a Super Bowl commercial with Bill Murray for this, you know, the Jeep for the Super Bowl. This that was that was a year ago. Oh my gosh. And and you know, shortly after I returned from that. All the networks, everything was shut down. Yeah. It was, it was the end of everything. So it's, whereas some war movies are about, uh, I just saw a spectacular, I guess it, it's going to be an animated film called My Favorite War. Oh. <laughs> which, is, which is a killer, killer documentary, but it's an animated feature about, this Latvian girl and her favorite world war was World War II because it was so clear that the Russians on the television shows at the time, the Nazis were always the bad guy. The Russians were always the good guys. It was all so clear. Mm-hmm. And what the best years of our lives reminds us of, nothing was clear. Mm-hmm. Nothing. I mean, certainly it was clear the Germans were bad guys. We, right, we're, we're, not, we're not talking about we're not talking <laughs> about the war itself, but on the way home, these, yeah. who was a hero? Who wasn't a hero? Mm-hmm. Who is going to be honored for their work? Who is not going to be honored? Nothing is clear. Nothing is clear at all in the lives of all these people. So there's a great deal of suspense in this movie as to who's going to be okay and how are they possibly going to be okay. Right. Absolutely. Well, and and that all of these accomplishments, like for Fred, like he has so many accomplishments and he just keeps kind of downplaying them the whole time of like, I just, you know, I just put the bombs where they needed to go and I learned on the job and all this other stuff. And it's very low key because it's almost like there's no guarantee that these accomplishments are going to help you when you get home either there's still like a question mark of, okay, well, what's home going to be like now? You know what I mean? Yes. You bring up another interesting minor through line of the script that's amazing, and that is what these men have seen. Mm. Each one has a speech buried in their dialogue about what they have seen. Each one is confronted with, oh, you know, you're back. Oh, you must have seen a lot of stuff. You must have seen a lot of action. You must have seen it. People are hitting him with these questions. Mm-hmm. And you have Frederick March, who was in the middle of it all. And he, and what, I'll get to him in a second, because his <laughs> is the one that kills me. You have Harold Russell, who was in the Philippines, and who was in Guadalcanal and all this stuff. What he saw, nothing. 
Mm-hmm. He saw nothing because he was below deck on a ship. And they keep saying, well, what? You must have seen so much action, soldier. He said, no, I didn't see anything. Right. And they said, don't kid us. You know, they're looking at his hands, his, mm-hmm. his books. No, no, really. I was just under the deck of a ship and it caught fire and my hands were on fire. I was on fire and I woke up in a hospital. I didn't see anything. He didn't see anything of the war. He was always below deck. Dana Andrews, the pictures he saved from what he has seen. Mm-hmm. And he shows his wife. These were the, his pride and joy pictures were the bomb sites from the airplane with the, with the target on clouds. And occasionally you see a little tiny building or something underneath the clouds. It's right. a bunch of nothing that he saw. And then Frederick March is uh, confronted by his bank president. Oh, Al, good to have you back. You must have seen a lot. And he says, he says, oh, well, and again, Frederick March doesn't want to talk about the war he's seen. He says, I've seen a lot of men, and I've seen a lot of men, and you get to know by looking at a man under stress right. if he's going to be able to stand up to it or not. And you get a second sense as to which men you could count on and which ones you can't. That's what I've seen. And... <laughs> You know, he saw the souls of men is yeah. what he saw in battle. None of them talk about going overseas and seeing, seeing Paris or seeing, no, no, nothing. Right. It's nothing, nothing in the souls of men. Yeah. Just gorgeous. Just from start to finish. Well, and so let me ask you, and this might be a hard question. Let me ask you. What would you say is your favorite part or moment or line of this film? I, you know, asking me right now, even though there's so many, I would say the <laughs> the last, the last speech of the movie, mm. the 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 end of the movie is so again shocking, yeah, because it is, it is after all of this talk and all these speeches, it's a nothing, it's a non-speech it it's 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 a nothing speech uh you know there's the moment of harold russell on bed in the bed saying nothing but just with tears streaming down his face uh (laughs) in terms of great lines i'm gonna break up that marriage is pretty good (laughs) (laughs) i love it so blunt and it's so out of the ordinary for like heroines of that time it's it's like like she should just take a back seat but she's like i've got to break up that marriage like so definitive (laughs) what's your favorite what's your favorite oh that's hard um hmm. it might be when yeah okay i'm gonna say this i think it's when they all like accidentally meet at butch's and they're playing the piano and Frederick Mark March is like, can you play souvenirs? And he goes, Oh yeah, sure. No problem. And he dances with Myrna Loy, but like, he's so obviously like so drunk, (laughs) but I think she's just happy to be with him. And so like that whole scene just kind of warms my heart of like, they're just home and they're just having a good time. And the people around them are also just so happy 
to be with them because it's obvious that Myrna Loy like wants to go home and <laughs> go to bed. That seems also a little shocking because as they're dancing, you know, Frederick March is so drunk, and mm-hmm. and there's several moments you tell he can't really see clearly, and he ends up there they're cheek to cheek, and he's mm-hmm. looks at Myrna Loy, and he doesn't necessarily recognize her, and he. <laughs> Begins to make a little confession. You know, you know, I should tell you I am married. <laughs> and Myrna Loy kind of looks at him like, oh, this is what you've been doing for the last five years. Yeah. You know, you know, how many affairs have you had over you know, but she looks at him and she goes, Oh, well, you know, what would your wife think about this? Oh, you know, i mean, it's it's an amazing scene where she lets yeah. it go and and as you said, is just happy to have him back. Yeah. Oh, uh, how about how about when they make love for the first time? Oh, I know. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> There's a shocking scene. I know. Where well, where are our children? Do you know we? I remember we had a couple children. With, oh well, sons. Whatever at, happened to them? We had the sons at school, and Peggy's gone to work. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, and you see him thinking he's just had a shower. Okay, okay. Myrna Loy starts making the bed and he grabs her and then you're like, oh, this is going to go the other way. I see. And then afterwards, they're both so happy. Yeah. Eating breakfast. They're both like, all right, now we're home. Yeah. Well, and I love that that line that Frederick March says is like, she's like flitting around and doing things like, being a you know the perfect housewife i guess you could say and he's like can you stop doing that and just sit down with me and it's like <laughs> <laughs> it's just so sweet oh it's it's it is human life well observed and a a screenwriter again robert sherwood mm-hmm. who has the trust to let his characters tell the damn truth instead of making a screenplay where the suspense mode is somebody's lying. Let's find out who's lying. Right. No, they're telling the truth. And like the total blunt, honest truth throughout the whole thing. It's like, yeah. <laughs> they're going to answer you. <laughs> yeah. Be careful what you ask. Yeah. I think it does such a great job, too, of balancing those light and dark moments because, like, there's the moment when Teresa Wright is crying because she realizes that her parents did have to work hard for their marriage, but, like, that's why they're happy now. And there's that long shot of Frederick March in the hallway and he's smoking a cigarette and it's just, like, dark shadows everywhere and you just see, like, the smoke and his silhouette and it's like, ooh, this is deep and meaningful. But then there's also the scene of like, they just made love for the first time since he came home. And he's like, just sit down with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, it's, so it's, it's spectacular. It's a spe- you know, and it's, I cannot tell you now how many times I've seen this film. <laughs> uh, like I've seen The Deer Hunter, I'd say maybe a dozen times, really a dozen times. Love it, still love it. I've seen it twice during the pandemic. Oh, really? Uh, since you mentioned this, you know, pick your favorite film. I had mm-hmm. not seen Best Years of Our Lives for about four or five years. I've seen this film a couple dozen times. Mm-hmm. It's, it is, it bears repeating. There's so much detail in it, and there's so much cleverness in the writing. 
skill in the writing, and you're endlessly fascinated with the windows and the mirrors and how they decided to shoot this as a long shot instead of a close-up and what they picked as close-ups. It's it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, well-deserving of the seven Academy Awards it won and the honorary award that they gave Harold Russell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Because that's the other thing is Harold Russell won Best Actor, but they didn't think he was going to win. So they already made an honorary award for him for bringing hope and courage to his uh, fellow veterans is what it says online. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Just so good. But I I think one thing about the movie, too, is the reason why it could be the best movie ever made is that I think... So much energy went into the telling of the story and not like, this is going to be grand. Mm -hmm. There isn't a lot of self-consciousness of like, well, we have the best actors of the day and we have the best screenwriter of the day and we have the best director of the day and we're going to make... There wasn't a lot of... uh, Like bravado? There wasn't wasn't a lot of self-focus in the film (laughs) of like taking an extra bow or whatever this there was there was not about there's no grandiosity in yeah. it except the score which is stunningly good the score mm-hmm. is stunningly good dun, dun. you know i was thinking they have that those five chords that they use as a repeated beat and it it sounds either like the roman conquerors coming home mm-hmm. or it sounds like a funeral march yeah. It, it it could sound like anything, but it is also a noble score. The score mm-hmm. is also the music is noble. Uh, it doesn't try to be again grandiose. There's something mm-hmm. humble about the film, which yeah. may also be why it's the greatest film ever made. I think. Yeah. Well, and I think the. I think one of the great things that you're touching on is that all of the elements of this film, I don't think any of them overshadow each other. Like I think the score is beautiful, but it it almost holds the hand of like the cinematography and the story. And then it's, but that's what all of the pieces of this film are doing is they're almost, they're supporting each other without overshining each other. Yes. Yes. Stunning. Stunning. (laughs) So is there anything else we can rave about this movie for? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I could just, I could just say this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Myrna Loy and Frederick March are really the leads of this film. These two actors have been in so many movies and they've been in comedies. They've been in dramas. This requires both. But to see what a great actor is, you take a look at the body of work of Myrna Loy and Frederick March, spectacular. And out of out of the dozens and dozens of amazing performances they both did as young performers and middle-aged performers, and even into their old age, this stands out as such 
a spectacular balanced performance between comedy and drama, between hard-assness and poignance, between being irritating and being noble. These performances are great performances from two performers who've done hundreds of films. I mean, together, they have been in hundreds of films, starred in hundreds of films. And this film is one of their best. Absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting because you had mentioned this is the film I want to do. And I was like, okay, great. 1946. We love that. But it hadn't been a film that I had like heard of even when I was going to film school, even when I was doing my master's, it wasn't on the list for some reason. And I was wow. watching it last night and I was like, why was this not on any of the lists that I was supposed to watch? <laughs> yeah, and, and if you're, here's exactly, you brought up Orson Welles. If you bring up Citizen Kane, there's mm-hmm. a lot of attention brought to the fanciness of the cinematography, you know, of, of long shots, long shots going up the rope, you know, with the seamless edits that go up mm-hmm. into the flies, you know, you, there's a lot of attention to call attention to itself, to the grandness of the photography. Mm-hmm. In this, like I say, it's all about the story and it's all about the film. Absolutely. In, in my, I didn't go to film school, but I went, you know, I did take film appreciation. Uh-huh. This was in, in our film appreciation <laughs> class. You, you know, uh, that film appreciation class was so great. One of the movies they showed was, uh, was, was it Mr. Deeds Goes to Town? Anyway. Mr. Deeds, I believe it was Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And at our film appreciation class, they brought in Frank Capra and Gene Arthur. Stop it. To Dallas, Texas. I sat next to Gene Arthur and I watched that movie. And and then Frank Capra gets up and answers questions. We're all we're sitting there, we're sitting there in the front two rows of the class. And then Gene Arthur goes up and answers questions. Give me a break. You know, it was a it was a very good film appreciation class. Excuse me while I pick my job off the floor. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is incredible. 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 I was uh Donald O'Connor came in for a screening of Singing in the Rain. What? Yes. Stop it. Stop yes. it. And he talked about and our class had about 27 people in it. And and he he looked around. And he said, like, you have to learn how to have a funny face like this. And he did his face. And he goes, like, make him laugh, make him laugh. And, and, all, and I'm going like, oh, my God. Uh, I mean, one of the things is that Bob Hope was a big benefactor of our school. The, the main theater was the Bob Hope Theater. Okay, gotcha. And so we had Bob Hope. Mm. Come in, teaching us comedy. Oh my God! Bob Hope, Bob Hope in the hallway at the green room at SMU said, "I, I, I said, I notice you always do your button. You always hold on to your top button when you do a monologue." And he laughed. He goes, "I, I turned sideways to the camera." And I always am fiddling with my top button because it creates suspense uh, for the audience, but they don't know it. 
you know, so I'm trying to do my button. I'm sideways with the camera. And then when I say the joke, I release the button and turn full front to the camera and it releases the tension and the audience laughs. And I go, oh my God. And Bob Hope says, and you know who stole that from me? And I go, no, who? He goes, Johnny Carson. In his opening monologue, he always turns sideways, plays with his top button, then turns full to the audience, releases the button on the joke. My God. Bob Hope. See, that that was one of the benefits of living back in in the old days of the 1970s where where these people, Donald O'Connor and Bob Hope. Right. And Gene Arthur, they were Frank Capra. They were all older. They loved that their films were being honored and they Uh wanted to come and talk to the students and all that stuff. They weren't busy working or doing anything. Oh, my gosh. I've never been so jealous in my entire life. (laughs) Yeah. That's uh, unbelievable. And uh, I think on North by Northwest... I went to see North by, now this wasn't in film school. This was in LA. I went to see North by Northwest at one of the revival houses. And this elegant woman was sitting right next to me. She came in and sat down in the dark and she sat down right next to me. Mm -hmm. And it was Eva Marie Saint. (gasps) Stop. (laughs) And then she got up and she started talking about the movie. Right. She was, she was the heroine in that film right yeah i think so north by northwest with carrie grant oh beautiful film amazing (laughs) that's i'm so jealous well and it was funny because i when i watch these films i'm always like it's not a sense of nostalgia because i would never know what it's like in 1946 but there's there is a feeling of like God, what it would be like to go to a jazz club and like dress to the nines. And it just has a different feel than going to like a, a club nowadays where it's you wear a nice pair of jeans and like a decent top. But like just the elegance and the fun that it seems like. Oh, oh my oh, gosh. They're all dressed up at the jazz club and the club is so crowded. Right. That everybody is bumped into one another. I mean, the dance floor is crammed. No one can move. No one can move. It's like a rave or something, you know, it's like a mosh pit. (laughs) 1946 version of a mosh pit. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. It's always such a delight to speak with you. I just never know what I'm going to get. And it's just always spectacular. (laughs) Well, I, I hope, I hope, I hope it's, I hope it turns on more people to watching this movie because they should really watch this movie. It's really, really, really good. Oh, that's the goal. We are, we are trying to promote old school films. We are all about um, historical films uh, and your favorite films and everything in between. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, I'm, I'm a fan. Thank you. I'm a fan of yours as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. well i think we have come to the point where we can wrap it up i think we have praised this movie uh to the extent it deserves and uh first of all thank you for picking it because like i said i hadn't seen it and i hadn't heard of it and i'm so glad that i know of it and have watched it now it's in the repertoire i'm buying it on blu-ray on amazon (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) 
not only that, not only that, you know, when I played it for the kids, you know, as a grown up, and, uh-huh. you know, Robert, when he was growing up, wanted to see a movie. I put this movie on, even though it's black and white, he was riveted to the, to the screen. Oh, that's you know, even, even as a kid, you know, they go like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Uh-huh. Oh, I love that. Well, so thank you for the movie, the yes, gift ma'am. that you've given me of this movie. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for coming on the show again. You're welcome. Literally any time you let me know when you want to talk about a movie and we will make it happen. <laughs> Very good. And um, is there anything that you have upcoming? I know now you're officially unemployed. Are there things that we should be looking out for? Uh, I, I think uh, the podcast is, is done, but it's still on the internet. You know, it's, so you oh, could wonderful. go to... Tobolowskifiles.com. The last 16 were this season of podcasts. And I tell stories kind of about movies and about life, love, entertainment, mm-hmm. being a grandfather now and being a, a husband and being a boyfriend and all, all sorts of stories. So, <laughs> and most of them are funny. Uh, so the Tobolowski Files, Tobolowskifiles.com. And uh, there are 99 uh, of them now, and each one's an hour long. Amazing. Amazing. It's well, amazing. Absolutely. And I'm subscribed. I'm still kind of catching up a little bit. So I'm not quite at the newest ones yet, but I am enjoying oh, it. Well, you'll, you will enjoy it because I have heard a lot of people saying like, they cannot get enough of this last season. I said, well, you better get enough of it because it's done. <laughs> it's finished. <laughs> now, now I'm writing the next, I'm writing the next group of stories now. I'm very excited. I'm excited to continue listening uh, to the soothing sounds of your voice. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Of course. So I will let you go. Thank you again. Welcome back anytime. It's been an absolute pleasure. You got it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Another huge, huge thank you to Stephen Toblowski for coming on the show and talking about his favorite film, the best years of our lives. I really honestly mean it when I say that this film was such a gift. Uh, During this break, uh, this holiday break that I've had from the show, uh, it was just so refreshing to see this film, which, one, in 1946, was breaking boundaries all over the place uh, between men being vulnerable, between you know, people with disabilities on screen, one, and two in a leading role. For 1946, I was just kind of amazed at the strength of these characters and the strength of the story. And also, it was just such a pleasure to talk to Stephen Toblowski and and just kind of really get into what makes this film so great. So if you liked this episode, you have a couple options. Option one, you can go back and re-listen to episodes one through 13 of season one. And if you've already done that, option two, you can follow us on Instagram at scopophilia underscore podcast. Or option three, you can follow us on TikTok at scopophilia the podcast. And since you're already there on the internet, don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to the show because it helps us out a lot. We want to hear from you. As always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, leading the millennial movie movement here on Scopophilia. 
and I'll see you all next Friday. Bye!